Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste and welcome. I'm just back from doing a silent retreat. My husband Jonathan and I have a kind of annual ritual where we go up to New England and do some silence for a week or two. And then part of our rituals we get to drive home together and, and share in some of the openings and insights that came out of whatever was going on, often out of difficult stuff, what we, what we came to realize. And Jonathan started the sharing, and he began by letting me know that he had, it had been physically a really rough ride, and he had had a clogged ear and a migraine, and his sleep was disrupted. And so I was really interested to know how this became grist for him. And um, after a long pause, he said, you know this retreat really sucked. (laughs) It was very refreshing. (laughs) There was no facelift to it at all. It was was great. Now, as it happened, um, I was also sick for the whole retreat. I had caught his his flu, and so... um, I was in bed a lot, and for whatever reason, it, it wasn't. It, I was miserable physically, but I actually had a. It was a very rich and juicy time of it, and it's not like I have a better practice. Often, the metaphor we use for a meditation or a retreat is: imagine that you're in a canoe and you're going, you know, across a lake, and it's fine weather, and you have the breeze at your back, and your 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 oars just gliding through the water, you're just kind of shooting through. And contrast that to the next day when you go and the winds are all tossing you around and the water's up, you know, all riled up and you're getting kind of turned clockwise and counterclockwise and, you know, it's a rough, rough go. Well, sometimes you might ask, which did you get more out of? both in different ways. And I think he got more sloshed water in his (laughs) canoe than I did. But what was interesting and and valuable in our conversation was that it was totally okay that it sucked. You know, it was like, it was okay as it was. There was some trust that, you know, we're, this awakening that is going on, it's just going on. And there's sometimes that it just feels crummy. And the most honest thing we can do is say, okay, this, this feels terrible. And it's almost like in the acknowledgement of it, we're not quite so caught up. So for both of us, each year we keep coming up with the same thing, which is whatever's going on, it's just in some way there's a deepening trust that these hearts are waking up, which is what I want to talk to you about for, for this particular reflection we have, uh, which is the power and importance of trusting the evolving of our hearts and minds that it's happening, trusting the essence of what we are, this um, awareness and love that's really at the essence, and begin with a 
quote I've always loved from uh, Sri Narsargadatta, and he, he writes this. He says, My guru told me that I am the ultimate source or essence of all. I pondered that until I knew it was true, until I became it. He added, I was lucky because I trusted what I was told. So we can make this really short talk. <laughs> you, know. you know, we could all take the guru's message. You know, basically the message is, your very essence is loving presence. The same loving presence is just the source of this whole universe. Just trust that. And it's interesting to me that, um, you know, we really can look in and, and ask that question. And maybe just to sense right now, if, if I ask you that, how many of you, I'm going to phrase it a little differently, how many trust that there is an evolving going on of consciousness that's going through your body-mind, that through time you're noticing that? Can I see by hands? Many, many. And this isn't a should, that you should or shouldn't. It's something that as we deepen our practice of presence, that trust grows, which is what we're going to be exploring, really. When the trust that it's really happening is very conscious and very full, and by full I mean really embodied, it's a knowing, we actually relax and inhabit the flow and are more available to a continued deepening evolving. So trusting helps us to then evolve more. When it's strong, and there's the signs of it, or there's a kind of ease, there's a, a sense of, of grace or at-homeness, of happiness. I think of it like a river that when there's trust, we kind of intuitively know how to flow around the rocks. There's a natural sense of how to adapt to, to things that come up as they come up. Uh, we're kind of guided by a, a really a universal sense of wisdom that's moving through. So there's an empowerment there and a natural kindness because when us humans are not caught in fear, we get very kind. Especially in difficult times, you know, as we might sense for many sense that the society is, is in a difficult time, we need people who are trusting that depth and are able to respond in an adaptive way from the heart, not from... Uh, a more angry reactivity or an egoic reactivity, but really from deep wisdom. Some years ago, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, talked about this when he described the boat people. He says that every time their small boats were caught in the storms, this is leaving Vietnam, they knew their lives were in danger. But if one person on the boat could keep calm and not panic, That was a great help for everyone. People would listen to him or her and keep serene and there was a chance for the boat to survive the danger. Our earth is like a small boat. Compared with the rest of the cosmos, it is a very small boat and it's in danger of sinking. We need such a person to inspire us with calm confidence, that that open heart, guide us. Who is that person? If you are yourself, if you are your best, then you are that person. 
Only with such a person, kind, calm, lucid, aware, will our situation improve. I wish you good luck. Please, be yourself. Be that person. So this is a description of the bodhisattva, an awakening being that that trusts that awakening, trusts that heart, and really acts with courage. When trust is weak, well, then we're living from a sense of disconnection. And the way the world is experienced is basically a dangerous place. That's when trust is weak. So we end up having to resist and fight what's going on, our grasp onto things, and uh, we don't trust ourselves, so we're really addicted to how other people view us. That's one of the signs of mistrust. I was just teaching up in uh, Garrison at the institute there, the center there, and we did a, a reflection on what we fear. And people shared in a group different fears they had. And one group reported that everybody had the same fear, which was other people's judgment. That's not trusting our essential value, goodness, heart. So what happens when we mistrust? We get then dependent on others to kind of frame our reality for us and tell us really who we are. And that's why people that feel powerless get attracted to those that have a lot of power. We, we end up getting caught in other people's view or authority because there's not an inner compass So developmentally that's appropriate. When we're very, very young we need to be mirrored and guided. But then the problem is if we don't outgrow it by learning to trust our own being. little story about development. There's an eight-year-old that loses his tooth and he's curious about the tooth fairy. So he finally confronts his mom. He says, Mom, are you the tooth fairy? And she said, yes. And he seemed to take this potentially jarring news pretty well. Um, he heads toward the door, but then he turned around with a quizzical look and he asked her, how do you get into the other kids' houses? <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> so I mentioned the value of trust in difficult times in a similar way when it's not there when there's a lot of beings that are disconnected from that fundamental sense of awareness and and love and really connectedness, then a reactive fear kind of becomes contagious and it can sweep. You know, it's that limbic hijack that you can sense in a society because we're not able to act with a wise heart. And and it takes the form of greed, grasping, excessive, like let's let's extract every last resource from this earth or violating those that are most vulnerable. I mean, I was thinking today of, you know, the quality of heart-mind that would say, you know, to go ahead, to give the go-ahead on the Dakota access pipeline. And I was just sensing, look, if you really feel that sense of connection with the earth, that the earth is our larger body. And if you really feel that connection that all beings, indigenous beings, all beings are our family. If you really sense that, you know, if you really sense future generations, like really have that inclusiveness, would we do this? This isn't about partisan politics, this is about harming and 
versus cherishing life because you trust your belonging and live from that. So we look at what happens with trust and then we say, well, what determines? How come some people feel more trust than others? And um, it's nobody's fault that they're mistrustful and then act in violent ways. It's, it's really a deep, deep conditioning. And if you think of what a child most needs, a child needs to be seen and loved. And that creates a sense of belonging. And to the degree that that mirroring, being, being seen as, oh, you, you're precious, you matter, you know, you can do behaviors that we don't like, but we cher- cherish you. To the degree that that's not there, there's a severed belonging, a mistrust. Life is not safe. I could get ejected. I can't count on people. And that's because we're in a culture that's violent and greedy and that has to then affect the nervous systems of the generations before us. There's severed belonging for most of us to some degree. So the, the project almost is, is to how to rediscover a sense of connectedness to our bodies and our earth and each other. When there's disconnection, we protect ourselves with fight, flight, freeze. We grasp onto substitutes to make us feel better, to give us more security. And we push away, we defend against threats. And I often, in these reflections, really say, okay, so what are your particular ways of grasping and resisting? I call them false refuges, the ways we're trying to take care of ourselves, trying to make ourselves feel better, deal with the severed belonging, the pain of separation. Because unless we see our own patterning, if it's unconscious, if it's below the line, Remember that big circle of awareness and whatever's... there's a line going through the middle, whatever's below the line's unconscious, whatever's above the line's conscious. If it's below the line, the way that you're holding on to some things to feel better or pushing away, your whole identity gets narrowed into a small fearful self. It gets locked into mistrust. So what are they? What are some of these forms of grasping and resisting? I mean, for most of us in this culture, food. It's the quickest, earliest way that we can try to soothe our nervous system. It's no surprise that eating disorders are so pervasive. Does that make sense? Does that... yeah, okay. So food's a big one. And then other self-soothing with alcohol and drugs and other forms of gambling and so on. I like the way Rita Rudner puts it. She says that I love to shop after a bad relationship. I don't know. I buy a new outfit and it makes me feel better. It just does. Sometimes if I see a really great outfit, I break up with someone on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) So we know, we we get kind of attached to our fixes in certain ways. And then, of course, for most of us, another way to get away from that angst of not okay, something's wrong with me, I don't belong, is that we distract ourselves. Then I wonder how many of you get that you use online time. You're on the screen in ways that are sometimes ways of running away from yourself in the moment. How many 
get a little addicted there. I know that I do, you know. We also get one of our false refuges to try to feel better is a kind of blaming or judging others. It's a way to try to control things, um, sometimes even attacking. The, the aggression, you know, there's a, there's a way in which if we're aggressive and controlling, we don't have to face our own vulnerability. We're seeing it big time in our culture. We can see it individually. In one cartoon you have a praying mantis, a female, on the couch and her psychiatrist is listening and she's saying, honestly, doctor, I tried to keep the channels of communication open, but it was so much easier just to eat them. (laughs) A little silly, I know. But the big one is, this is the big false refuge, the biggest way we try to control things is judging ourselves. And it sounds a little, you know, how does that fit? But the more we judge ourselves, the more we feel like, well, maybe we can change ourselves and be the person who deserves to belong. So we, we judge ourselves and we internalize other people's judgments. It's like that story some of you will remember of the woman who walks by the pet store and there's a parrot outside in the cage. And she walks by it and the parrot goes, Awk, awk, you're ugly and you're stupid. And she goes, wow, that's strange. You must have heard that somewhere. Decides to ignore it. But the next day, she's walking by and the same thing happens. You know, awk, awk, you're ugly and you're stupid. You know, so she, it happens and she's annoyed. So she thinks she should tell the owner and, um, you know, she goes in and describes and he's abjectly apologetic. He said, don't know how that happened, but he'll do some training with the parrot and makes all these promises. So the next day, she goes by, and the parrot goes, Awk, you know. <laughs> we do internalize. It's like that voice in our mind that has a certain tone, has a certain message, picked it up. And our parents, how come they were critical? They're trying to control things too. So we have these false refuges. Some of us exaggerate and mislead and lie. Some of us accommodate others to try to be liked. I think a really big one for many of us is just seeking approval. Like how many moments in our lives are we in some way presenting ourselves so as to get a certain response from others, you know, that's positive, you know, rather than just a natural spontaneity of who we are, you know? And it's, it's something that I've watched, I've certainly watched myself over the years being addicted to um, approval through performance. Um, if you know the Enneagram, I'm a, I'm a three on the Enneagram, which means that very early on, I guess my father, the way he showed me love was, you know, just being proud of me if I did well on something, so that became it, you know, try to perform. And... I remember when I was writing Radical Acceptance, I asked myself a question which was, what would be enough? Like how, how much would be enough in terms of performing and being achieving or being successful for me to really trust that I'm lovable and worthwhile? And of course, as you probably know the answer, there's no such thing as enough. I mean, I thought to myself, okay, I could write 20 books, co-lead re- retreats with the Dalai Lama, you know, spend 
perfect quality time with my son Orion and close ones and, you know, political activism, be really a good ally and work, put in a lot of time to this and, of course, meditate and exercise and eat. You know, I did no way enough. You know why? Because there's always the next day that you have to keep it up. It's like the machine always needs to be fueled. You're never enough. And so interestingly I found that, because, you know, clearly approval-seeking for... and I know I'm not alone on this one. We deeply want to feel loved and lovable and connected and it's through trying to look good and be good. And the irony is that none of those efforts actually render forth a deep trust that we're good. And the moments that we actually feel it, that we feel that, that loving presence, that we're in that field, that, that there's some basic goodness and okayness, it comes when there's no, no effort at all towards accomplishing or achieving. It comes in moments when we're really relaxing back and just being when there's presence. I was very struck. Um, the recent retreat that I led where a, a man in his early 70s, he had touched that, that sense of enough, that, you know, I am enough not to do with externals. And he said to me kind of sadly, why did I have to wait so long to realize I didn't need to keep proving myself? You know, how many years do we go through playing out our false refuges, whether they are trying to feel better by self-soothing through, you know, food or substance or proving ourselves or, or by judging others or judging ourselves. It doesn't work. So we then turn our attention to what does help us reconnect? What does deepen that trust that frees us? And the practices that really bear fruit are when we bring what are sometimes called the two wings of presence, the two wings of awareness to exactly what's here. Rumi says, the wound will not heal until given witness. The shadow that follows us is the way in. So when we feel that that vulnerability, that fear, that hurt, that anger, rather than taking off into our traditional conditioning, the false refuge, the substitutes, can we learn instead to bring awareness, a, a witnessing, loving presence to what's here? I want to take... Uh, so we'll take the rest of our time exploring... Um, some of the ways that really can facilitate that. That when we recognize, let's say, obsessing or numbing or whatever the pattern is, that the beginning is in some way to have the intention to be a kind witness to it. I found for myself at this recent retreat that whenever I was stuck, and it's very, it's very easy at retreats to catch when you're stuck because all your external false refuges, they're off the map. You, I mean, there's no screen to look into. Your, your fingers start twitching, but you cannot go online and text or do anything. 
Um, food is, is wonderful, but it's, you know, just this and this and this at certain times. There's no um, freezer with Ben and Jerry's or whatever your thing is. You know, it's just not there. Um, and you're not talking to other people, so you can't, like, kind of leave yourself in that. It's pretty much your with what's here. Now it's amazing what the mind can do to try to leave. It does, over and over again. So that's what you watch. You watch the different ways you try to leave. And it does it in these looping thoughts about what's wrong or going to go wrong or what, you know, what we have to be, you know, what we have to be worried about, what we have to um, deal with in the future, what we regret in the past, you know, it just loops. When I got stuck, in some way, other than, in, other than resting in presence, the first thing I would do is just say, okay, be a kind witness. Because the moment that there's even a remembrance of this is happening, but you can be big enough to just, just witness it kindly, there's a little space that opens up. Now, it can close off very quickly because the stuff is so sticky, it just drags you right back in. But that's, that's the first step, is to... Um, do that. So for me, there there were different versions of it. I had, uh, I would get the the stuck places this time where I would feel I would go on to you know a lot of looping about what's going on in our society right now. A lot of aversion, anger, judgment, fear. Feel that one come up. Um, as I mentioned, I was sick, and so I was wondering, you know, okay, I'm sick and I need to take care, but am I really? Could I be making a little more effort and kind of? second-guessing myself as to whether I was trying hard enough. Um, I was anxious about a a large project that I'm working on because I'm behind schedule. And one big one was that I had had some tension with a friend that we planned to to talk about, but we didn't have a chance. So I went into retreat not having worked that out. And I saw my mind continuing to self-justify my position. So that was going on. Okay, I've confessed. Now you know my... <laughs> those are the big ones. So I would do the... So, so with the kind witness, there's a very, very useful process for it that you can try out. And I'm going to walk you through this. In, in a, I'm going to have you pick an area where you get stuck and we'll talk about how to move from stuckness to trust. But um, when you imagine a kind witness, you can imagine that you're taking your awareness and kind of having it up in the corner of the room watching you. So you kind of sense your body as a form, the thoughts are circling, the feelings there, but you're kind of watching it from a little bit outside. And then you take that awareness that's, that's first, okay, this is what's going on, and then you have it begin to surround you and enter you so that that, that witnessing is actually very embodied and there. But here's the thing. Even as, the, as you get embodied and you start really being very present with what's there, it's very easy to get hijacked because along with feelings that are difficult, like um, feelings of something's going to go wrong or something's wrong with me, uh, very quickly we leave the witness position and lock back into that part of us that feels shamed, fearful, angry, or whatever. So we need something more than just being the kind witness and getting embodied. We need a very active way of bringing some, some care to the parts of us that are upset or they end up hijacking the witness. Does that make sense? 
Okay. I'm going to give you an example of how we can... What we're really doing is strengthening the two wings of presence. Seeing what's going on and loving what's there. And the witness is the one that's seeing and loving. And it starts as a kind witness, and then it becomes an embodied kind witness. And then the last step is that it becomes a really uh, loving, actively loving witness. So it's actually not witnessing as much, it's really engaged presence. So for me, um, as I mentioned, I got... One of my stuck places was that I was rerunning this disagreement and... and um, kept finding myself justifying my position. I, I know that the real way I need to go at it is wanting to listen and understand better somebody else, but I was just there, kind of keep running over and over again why I was right. And so as I began to, you know, bear witness, I could, and, and get into my body, I could sense that there was that belief and feeling of, wait a minute, maybe I did something wrong, and not wanting to sink into the possibility that maybe I had made a mistake. And what, I, what was fueling that self-justifying was the feeling of shame or fear in my body. And so I went from that kind witness to the embodied witness, feeling the shame or fear, and then I started sending a message to the place that felt ashamed or afraid. And the message was, you belong. I was telling that place, you belong, you're, you're part of me. It's okay that you're there. Because anything other than that actually strengthens it and feeds it. Any resistance to the fears in us actually fuel them. So it was as if I was the ocean saying to this wave, you belong, you belong, I care about you, I care about this fear, you're part of me. And I started finding right away some space around it. And so that presence really became full. I wasn't getting hijacked. And so then when I discovered the power of this message, you belong, that my high self was saying to this wave, or however you want to think of it, I started doing it every time I got stuck. Every time I got stuck, I'd, I'd kind witness and I'd feel it in my body and then whatever was difficult or vulnerable or painful, I would just gently say, you belong. And I found that there was a real magic. It, it countered the sense of distrust that comes, like, this is bad and it shouldn't be part of me. It included, and in that including allowed me to rest in a much more... Um, spacious and open place. John O'Donohue says that there's a longing within us all that draws us towards belonging, that every part of us wants to belong, that our life's journey is the task of refining our belonging so that it may become more true, loving, good, and free. So this is a process of including, so that all of me belonged. I'd like to have you experiment with a little, okay? So we're going to try it out together. Um, If you will, just take a moment to sit in whatever ways uh, comfortable for you, but you can be alert.
taking a pause right now and inviting yourself right here, right into the moment. You might scan the last day or so and sense if there was a stressful situation where you know you went a little bit into trance, where you got a little hijacked, caught in some reactivity. Might have been in a relationship that's got some conflict or might have been some addictive behavior that came up, something at work. Or in some way it triggered some, some anger or fear or sense of being wrong, making a mistake. See if you can go right into that situation. Imagine you're, you're in it and you're caught in that reactivity. Remember what's going on. Somebody else is saying something, the expression on their face or what they're saying. If you're doing something and you feel like it's off, what it is. The kind of thoughts in your mind. the feelings there. Let yourself freeze that frame so it's right there. And imagine that you can just remember and say, okay, kind witness. So you can kind of float your awareness to a corner in the room. And just take a moment to bear witness. Remember, everything wounded needs witnessing. You're just bearing witness to your form sitting there, standing there, doing what it's doing, with the thoughts circling and the reactivity going on. You're just bearing witness. And you're deepening that presence by letting that awareness now surround your body-mind and then enter in. So you're just feeling that, that presence, that witnessing presence around you and inside you. And let yourself become aware of what feels most vulnerable inside you. Is it fear? Is it hurt? Anger? What's going on? Is it grief? sense where you feel it in your body. And from that kind witnessing presence, just send that message to what feels most difficult inside you. You belong. Just a mental whisper, very tender. You belong. Notice what happens. You belong. And if you feel numb or cut off right now, whatever's going on right now, 
send that message, you belong, because it all belongs. Become that ocean that really recognizes and allows all the waves. What happens to the fear when you tell it, you belong, you're part of me, it's okay? Sensing the wholeness, the presence, space, the tenderness that's here when we include. We can sense that some in these words from Meister Eckhart. He says, when I was the stream, when I was the forest, when I was still the field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin and wing, when I was the sky itself, No one ever asked me, did I have a purpose? No one wondered if there was anything I might need, for there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, the fear, the questions came, and I wept and wept, tears I'd never known before. So I returned to the river, I returned to the mountains, I begged, I begged to wed every object and every creature And when they accepted, God was ever-present in my arms, and God did not say, where have you been? For then I knew my soul, every soul, has always held God. In the moments that we truly sense you belong, we open into trusting, that that sacredness is living through us. We find that this insight spirals ever deepen in an ever deepening way, that every part of us does belong. Every part of us is part of reality. Resistance increases the identification with that fearful small self that thinks something's wrong and including dissolves the identification. It frees us to inhabit our wholeness, our true belonging. So if you want to open your eyes, please do. We are learning to love ourselves into healing, to love every part of ourselves into healing. Anything less than loving will not work if we want to heal and be whole. So there are two pathways I like to speak of and the first we've been talking about right now which is that when something comes up you know, we become that kind witness we bring the two wings of seeing and loving right there to it we rest in the reality that's right here The second pathway is that we remember we turn towards the loving presence that we have forgotten You know, we have this negativity bias that keeps us fixated on what's wrong. So part of the ways we decondition that is by purposely turning towards the light, purposely saying, okay, so where is love? Where is presence right now? It's as Rumi says, your heart knows the way. Run in that direction. So... Turning towards the light, we're going to, this is the way we're going to be concluding our reflection. We're going to explore a 
a, a short meditation that I think is really a powerful way to, to do that, to call on, call on that loving presence that's here. There are outer ways we do it. We can call on an outer guru of sorts. And there's mature ways that that's possible. Because um, a, a, a true guru, which is one who brings us from darkness to light, is actually bring, is pointing us back over and over again to the light of our own true nature. There's other beings outside us that can help us. But we also need a way. Every one of us needs a way to be able to, within our own being, turn to the light of our spirit, turn to that warmth and luminosity. We each need a way. So our, our final practice will be finding that way so that we can more and more trust this sacred light and love that is our source and then be able to live from it, act from it in our world. It then becomes natural if we're not caught in a separate self that thinks that the world's dangerous, that we sense our connection and belonging to each other. If another's in need, we offer them reassurance and sanctuary and care. And if our earth's in need, we respond. That becomes natural. But it comes out of that trust in our belonging, that direct experience of belonging. So we'll close together with um, this guided meditation. And I've been teaching different versions of it recently. This is a version that people are finding quite helpful on how to really turn towards our most evolved and awakened heart. So again, for this final few minutes here, if you will, to come into stillness and close your eyes. This meditation has the language of turning towards our future self. And what that really means is uh, the future, our future self is the most evolved expression of who we are. Um, it's really how awake, loving presence lives through this body-mind when it's fully manifested. Um, if you prefer other language, you could say your high self or your true self. So we begin by imagining or visualizing our being when we're really manifesting love and presence, this future self or high self. And you might imagine five, ten, twenty years ahead, whatever feels right, how your more evolved being appears. And by that I mean you might start by sensing where you are. Are you someplace inside or maybe in a natural setting that resonates with who you're becoming? So if you're at all visual, you might visualize it or get a felt sense of some place where your future self is. And if you're visual, you might sense even what you're wearing, if there's a certain color or kind of clothing that expresses something about you. There may be something nearby, a favorite book, poetry, a painting, maybe a dog, a plant. 
there might be certain music playing, anything that, that is an expression of who you are becoming. But mostly sense how your future self's wisdom and love expresses through the eyes, face, posture, the way the hands are. So see if you can sense energetically your own being when your heart's really awake. You can explore now bringing a current life challenge to your future self. Just bring something that's going on right now that's, that's difficult, maybe something that's hard to forgive in yourself or in someone else, or feeling a failure, something that's a, a struggle that maybe has to do with addictive behavior or something you're really afraid of some loss that you're facing, some conflict. And that you're bringing this to your future self, your more evolved, awakened being, to get some guidance, to get some healing. sense that you've shared it and now you're really opening to listen, to receive the, the response, maybe words or an energetic response, a message of some sort from your future self. Beyond the words, you might allow the felt sense of your future self's presence to fill you. Just notice how your body feels when that presence fills you, how your heart feels. Sense the expression on your own face, how it changes when you're manifesting that awake heart what your eyes are like, your posture, and you might even let your posture shift a little right now to feel that you're really allowing the energy and consciousness of your future self to fill you. You might let your hands soften or in some way be in a gesture or position that that feels expressive of that consciousness. Sense how you can include what's arising 
in your current life that it belongs and you can include it with love. Letting yourself get very familiar with the sense of, ah, so when this heart is really awake, it's like this. You might sense in the situation that you brought up the different possibilities of responding when you're connected and trusting the presence of your awakened heart. I returned to the river, I returned to the mountains and I begged, I begged to wet every object and every creature and when they accepted, God was ever present in my arms and God did not say, where have you been? For then I knew my soul, every soul, has always held God. We close by sensing how this very heart, what is described as the awakened heart, the empty, fearless, radiant heart, holds the world. That all the waves of life, all creatures, all beings belong in this heart. Just to feel our prayer that all beings know their belonging, that all beings everywhere can trust their very essence as loving presence, that all beings live from loving presence, that there be great and natural peace on earth and everywhere. May there be peace on earth and everywhere. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste and thank you. For more talks and meditations, and to learn about my schedule or join my email list, please visit tarabrock.com.